We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And by Dimitri Buras of TVBS News. Hi there. Tonight we'll be discussing the reactions or non-reactions of some have claimed to comments by Donald Trump after he told Fox News that Taiwan took America's semiconductor industry. The DPP holding its party congress as opposition presidential hopefuls rallied for affordable housing and judicial justice. Terry Gore taking to the Washington Post to opine about the dangers of abandoning a one-China framework. Controversy dogging the arrival in Taiwan of students and teachers from China for a Ma Ying-jeou Foundation organised exchange visit. And the results of a survey by the National Taiwan University showing that people here are willing to pay more for power to mitigate climate disaster risk. But we'll begin with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Monday announcing the Vice President and DPP presidential candidate Lai Ching-de will serve as President Tsai Ing-wen's envoy to next month's inauguration of Paraguay's President-elect Santiago Pena and they were making a stopover in the United States. However, the ministry did not provide any further details concerning Lai's itinerary while in the US. But US Secretary of State Antony Blinken did confirm that Lai will transit in the United States next month. Blinken also warned Beijing, and he said that he made it clear in recent meetings with Chinese officials that the US has no desire to alter the status quo and US policy on Taiwan has not changed. Now, while all that was far from earth-shattering news, what followed was rather interesting. As foreign Minister Joseph Wu on Thursday denied reports that senior US officials are concerned about recent comments by the vice president and DPP presidential candidate. That denial follows the Financial Times, quoting a former White House China official as saying that the White House is very anxious about lie and has placed the Biden administration in a difficult position. That story was published after Lai told supporters at an election rally in Ilan that when Taiwan's president can walk into the White House, his political goal will have been achieved. Now, now, the UK newspaper said Biden administration officials had sought clarification of Lai's remarks as the White House wants to avoid a situation similar to that caused by previous Taiwan presidential visits to the United States, which resulted in significant friction in Washington's relations with Beijing. Now, the foreign minister dismissed the report, saying the US has denied contacting Lai's election campaign team and the government has built a very solid relationship with the US in recent years, while a spokesperson for Lai's campaign office is also insisting that no White House officials have any concerns about the issue. So, Brian, Mr. Lai goes to Washington, or doesn't go to Washington, because he's not going to go anywhere near Washington, <laughs> but he is going to America. But apparently, recent comments have led the White House to say, hold on there, Hoss. Maybe you should tone it down a bit, mate. Yeah, so it's not surprising there would be some skepticism Lai. I mean, in light of past comments by Lai expressing that he was a pragmatic worker for Taiwanese independence. And so then concerns are about him going off script while he's in the U.S., uh, and so it's interesting. I mean, the Biden administration has itself become somewhat ambiguous on its stances on Taiwan, with many gaffes or apparent gaffes by U.S. President Joe Biden that were then quickly walked back. And so it takes place in this change environment. And there definitely is, of course, much stronger exchanges between the U.S. and Taiwan and talks of uh, trade talks and, and, and so forth. Uh, but then this kind of concern among some quarters in Washington still exists. And so it came up in this way. Uh, particularly Lai seemed to be trying to signal moderation at that point in time, that he was willing to have dinner with Xi Jinping, for example, which he stated when asked who in the world he would want to have dinner with most. 
And in the same time frame, then he makes these comments about wanting to see a Taiwanese president in the White House. And so it played out in this way. But I think one aspect of his comments has been kind of magnified. Um, it's to be seen how this, uh, the Lai campaign reacts to this, though, because he does want to gesture to supporters that he does want to increase Taiwan's international space or move towards original aims of allowing Taiwan to have representation internationally. Well, the U.S. worries that Lai's transit could impact their efforts to ease tension with China, despite the vice president's recent toned-down statements. Well, the AIT chairwoman urged China on Wednesday not to use Lai's stopover as a reason for provocative actions. Well, during his stay, Lai is likely to meet with, as you said, think tank leaders, Congress members, and the AIT chairwoman, which is kind of similar to previous years. He will also deliver a passionate speech about democracy and fighting authoritarian regimes, which is also similar to what happened in the past. There will be discussions with Taiwan's representative in Washington, which who is considered maybe a potential vice president hopeful during uh, the campaign later this year, uh, which is could be also a, a potential good news. While these questions are legitimate, there is no need to worry about uh, Vice President Lai's becoming like Chen Shui-bian in the past because he caused a lot of headaches for the State Department and even for local media with his diplomatic moves. Lai is well aware that every step he takes is closely monitored and he must avoid any mistakes to project the image of a responsible leader. So he's leading in the polls in the presidential race after all, so it's going to be, uh, he will try to make the, the trip as smooth as possible. But Brian, where can he transit? I said earlier he's not going anywhere near Washington, although his campaign team and some people came out this week and said maybe he could go to Arlington to say that he was in Washington, but not likely to happen. <laughs> It's a good question. I mean, there's any number of destinations. I mean, New York could be one, for example, and he could have made a speech at a think tank. And so it's to be seen. I mean, I think also particularly the uh, variety of places in which there's large concentrations of Taiwanese diaspora makes it easy to have a number of choices for stopovers. And so often when that happens, I mean, for both camps, really, they do meet with the local uh, overseas Taiwanese community. And there's also attempts to solicit funds for elections. And that's also another purpose of presidential candidates always visiting the U.S. Apart from meeting with U.S. officials, it is also to conduct meetings with the Taiwanese diaspora, who often have quite a lot of resources and will donate to campaigns and so forth. And so that might also be another consideration as to where he decides to go, which donors to seek out, and so forth. So pick two, Brian. Oh, I think I think East Coast and West Coast. That would probably make the most sense. Bit, One destination bit, on ETH. Bit more specific, maybe a city. Um, good question. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I think New York seems a likely choice. But then uh, West Coast, good question. I mean, California somewhere, that again. Well, it's a two-step tango. First, they need to. There will be discussions with the State Department, uh, Lai Chingder's team, to find the best location. Then they will kind of agree of an event that will be as an excuse to organize the to to invite him to visit that city. So uh, they will have discussion about what topic would it be. So that's why we can expect again a speech, uh, maybe kind of an, an award or something, an, an excuse for him to go to whatever city. He could maybe also decide to visit his uh, previous university. He could. There are many uh, options right here. So uh, they will wait, I think, until after the, they confirm the location and the invitation for the event before announcing the exact destination. And Brian, of course, the Chinese ambassador in Washington this week said Beijing is going to try and make it its priority, he said, to stop William Life and travelling to America. 
Yeah, and they compared him to a gray rhino, a uh, gray rhino charging. And I, I like that image because then you would see these weird images of the ambassador, Lai, and a gray rhino in Taiwanese media. Um, and so then that is the attempt to paint Lai's actions as provocative that way, or that he is irrational and pro-independence and will venture off script and say something crazy in a way that ramps up tensions. And so that framing is not exactly new from China, but uh, I think also... What will be interesting is if there are protests regarding Lai's visit. I mean, there's been the mobilization of the overseas Chinese community in these circumstances. And so that's part of the reason why the itinerary is kept under wraps until fairly close to the actual event. But uh, I think that w- will also occur. And Brian, do you, think, do you see Beijing getting a bit more bullshit in the Taiwan Strait as his trip to America nears? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, Beijing is looking for pretext to rehearse uh, military exercises, to practice a blockade, for example. It's not just signaling, it's also practice. And we are around one year out from the Pelosi visit, uh, in which we saw this dramatic escalation of uh, live fire exercises. And so I think basically we will see that again. I think another aspect is that it takes place after the Han Kuang exercises. And so there will be the kind of reaction to Taiwan's own military drilling. And so that's bound to take place. And of course, it will be framed a certain way in domestic politics and used to reinforce the narrative that strength and ties with the US lead to increased Chinese aggression towards Taiwan. There will be also maybe an increased pressure on Paraguay in the future to switch diplomatic ties to China, finding a way, an angle to convince them to stop uh, to cut ties with Taiwan, that would uh, solve what they call their own problem of these uh, transits once in a, um, almost once in a year. So, yes, the context is very important. The Hang Kuang exercise will be followed by another live drill the week after. So there will be plenty of reasons to hold another military, for the Chinese side to hold a military exercise. Uh, well, but it's in an election. And we also know that Hoyoi is also planning to visit uh, the United States uh, later that month or earlier in September. So, But we can't expect any response from China whenever he will arrive in, in the United States. And Brian, I mean, do you think Lai has to go to America? Because obviously he know he's going to meet all these people anyway. He could hear. Yeah, I mean, it is signaling. And so there's a question. I mean, is it necessary? And so I think there's a deliberation of if it was necessary, when to go and so forth. And that actually takes place with both camps. Uh, I think particularly the KMT and Hoyoi visiting the U.S. That's quite interesting at a time in which the KMT has leaned into much more U.S. skeptic narratives. And so I think there might be some pushback, actually, within the Pan Blue camp against his visiting the U.S. Uh, but but then I think what is interesting in that respect is, uh, for example, when Ma Ying-jeou visited China, China did not hold back with military exercises. That's around April. And so China will need to frame Ho visiting the U.S. and Lai visiting the U.S. in somewhat different terms. And sometimes they've not actually really hit home, I think, with their messaging. And, but many have said maybe Ho Oe shouldn't go to the United States because he probably should concentrate on getting support for his election campaign here. That's right. And definitely takes him away from Taiwan, which he could be spending that time campaigning. Uh, and so there would be that pushback. I mean, KMT presidential candidates usually do this. Uh, Hong Xiu actually pushed back into that notion, but eventually went. Uh, I think it's he's obligated in some way to go. I mean, also for finances for the KMT at a time in which the KMT claims not a lot of finances. But then there will be pushback. And I think then, particularly at a time of lowering approval ratings for Ho, there will be the question, should he actually go or should he focus on campaigning here? Well, it's a unique chance for a candidate like Hoyui to give its its bid like an international kind of a stature. If he skipped that trip, that would be a catastrophe for him because he would struggle for the last uh, four months into the campaign. He would really struggle in trying to establish himself as the um, the most suitable candidate to represent Taiwan on the international stage. So yes, it's going to be maybe seen in Taiwan as a waste of time, but he needs 
to reach to the U.S. side to clearly explain his goals and his plans for Taiwan's future before the before the the, the, the last few months of the election. Moving on now, and Donald Trump appeared not to be showing Taiwan much love this week. As in a Fox News interview, he made the lofty claim that Taiwan took America's chip business away and the US should have stopped them, taxed them and tariffed them. Trump also said he didn't want to say what his thoughts were on whether the US should defend Taiwan if China invades, adding that that would be putting him in a very bad negotiating position. And while US pundits and politicos agreed that Trump's comments on defending Taiwan were consistent with the US polity of strategic ambiguity, many were quick to dismiss Trump's claims regarding Taiwan taking America's semiconductor industry. Here in Taiwan, the government didn't say anything. There was no screaming tweets from the foreign minister and that, as the China Times put it bluntly, the Thai administration and the DPP have all now fallen silent. Now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs did come out with a comment reaffirming Taiwan's close economic and trade relations with the US and said that it had no comment on, well, Trump's comment. A day later, though, the ministry did say it doesn't accept Trump's comments, but some have called that a rather muted response and a rather late one. So, Brian, Mr Trump says something silly about Taiwan and the government just stum. Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, whether Donald Trump or Joe Biden, there have been a lot of statements that are then walked back or statements are ambiguous. And in this case, now we see Donald Trump taking more of a stance that seems to be against Taiwan. But then he also stuck to the stance of strategic ambiguity in the first half of his comments, in which he declined to answer if he would defend Taiwan or not, and then made that further ambiguous by criticizing Taiwan. And so this has been a kind of notion that's come up from MAGA Republicans that are such as those that support Donald Trump, and this takes place at a time in which he is seeking the presidency yet again. Uh, and I think particularly for the Tsai administration, the desire is to hedge bets, what if he wins? And so then you don't really want to offend him. Uh, I, there's still some idealization in some circles of the Tsai Trump phone call that took place in December 2016. And so there's this uh, now this pushback against Taiwan, and it's in line with Trump's political views, which are highly protectionist. And this, this backlash from MAGA Republicans against Ukraine, stating that Ukraine is wasting US money, and it's, this support should be going to Taiwan. Well, you look at their worldview about protectionism and all these countries in the world stealing jobs and manufacturing the from the U.S., and you can see how this narrative can easily be applied to Taiwan. And so I don't, I don't think it's surprising to that these comments would come up. Well, the Premier the premier just refrained commenting on these fabs and those issues uh, in the U.S. because it raised concerns among Taiwanese people that uh, it might lead to uh, job losses as factories and supply, supply chains relocate. However, this, this concern is, is based on a false narrative as these factories are considering using AI to offset the rising cost in the U.S. So instead of relying on a large workforce and willing to work night shifts, AI technology might play a more significant role in, in those factories. So the real question is, when these AI technologies return to the Taiwanese market, what will Taiwanese engineers do? The industry can't solely uh, depend on cheap labor indefinitely. So it's important to note that the US has outsourced manufacturing to Asia in the past to lower the cost. And similarly, Taiwanese manufacturers were smart in facing this challenge, so they shouldn't be blamed for the U.S. company's strategic decisions, and they're going to use the same logic to, well, offset their costs using AI. So, well, it's just another false narrative. Of course, Brian Dimitri made a point there, because 
First of all, we had Honhai getting in a bit of controversy with opening factories and buying out one company in America. <laughs> and now we've had TSMC apparently is having trouble with its Arizona plant and the way that its work ethos is translated into America. Yeah, it is funny to see Morris Chang cast doubt on his own plant that's just newly inaugurated not too long after, uh, after declaring globalization dead at the opening speech. And so it's quite interesting in that respect. Um, TSMC has attracted the US or pushed there, and so the KMT narrative is often that Taiwan is losing its advantages thanks to the TPP. I think uh, TSMC's perspective is that every company is now moving to the US attracted by these subsidies, these attempts to reshore in that sense. And so it would be missing out if it did not go and put in this money. Uh, and maintaining relations with the US, for example, uh, is of key importance to the company, uh, going where the customers are. And so there's this kind of narrative regarding that. It is actually quite interesting because the Biden administration has had to respond to this kind of protectionist undercurrent in U.S. politics currently. And so it did not, for example, rejoin the TPP that Trump withdrew the U.S. from very early on in office. And it touted TSMC's Arizona plant as a kind of revival of American manufacturing in line with this kind of push to reshore that one saw expressed in the form of Trump's protectionist views. But then it somehow doesn't surprise that Taiwan ends up in the line of fire. And Trump did make comments in the past also suggesting that he'd be willing to use Taiwan as a geopolitical chess piece in negotiating with, with China. And so it's, this is not exactly new from him either. Well, during our latest uh, TVBS meeting room on Monday, the former U.S. Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, warned that if Donald Trump is re-elected, he might weaken the relationship with Taiwan. Esper expressed concern that Trump could potentially withdraw the U.S. from NATO, remove U.S. forces from South Korea and Japan, and possibly weaken ties with Taiwan. Now, in this case, it's, it's worth noting that many Taiwanese supported Trump during his presidency, appreciating his tough stance on China and support for Taiwan. Taiwan's foreign minister expressed confidence that regardless of the new U.S. president, Taiwan uh, will maintain strong relations with the United States. However, there is a concern that if more Taiwanese companies open factories in the U.S., the Taiwanese public might become increasingly hostile to the idea of decoupling from the Chinese economy. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and Taipei saw two competing election-related events this past Sunday as the DPP was holding a party congress at the Grand Hotel. The KMT, the Taiwan People's Party and Terry Guo were calling for affordable housing and judicial justice on Kanaganan Boulevard. Now, the DPP adopted a series of motions during its congress, one of which bans election candidates with criminal records and along with banning party members with prior corruption, arms or drug convictions from being selected as election candidates, the DPP DPP also passed amendments to its constitution relating to sexual misconduct and safeguarding the well-being of children. The event featured speeches by President Tsai Ing-wen, Premier Chen Jianren, and presidential nominee and Vice President Lai Ching-de. And the DPP leadership autos took to the stage wearing matching green letterman jackets adorned with the slogan Team Taiwan. Tsai also passed the baton to Lai by presenting him with the flag of the 2023 DPP Congress. Meanwhile, on Kataganan Boulevard, KMT presidential candidate Ho Yoi, Taiwan People's Party candidate Ke Wenzhe and potential 2024 candidate Terry Guo were calling for affordable housing and judicial justice. The rally was organised by former lawmaker Huang Guo Chung and internet celebrity Holger Chen. Along with their voicing their support for affordable housing and judicial justice, Ho Ke and Guo all urged voters to remove the 
the DPP from office in January's election. Ho accused the DPP government of being rife with scandals, corruption and undue political interference in the judiciary. Kerr told participants that Taiwan has had three transfers of power since its democratisation, yet housing prices are soaring, fraud cases are prevalent and trust in the judiciary is diminishing, while wealth inequality is now significant. While Gore told the people at the rally that after seven years in power, the DPP has made no significant progress in the area of affordable housing, while the judiciary has become a tool for political wrangling among those in power. And despite there being three big names at the event, it turned into an election rally for only one of them, as Kerwinger's supporters were out in force. They jeered certain people when they took to the stage, and Brian, they rather embarrassed Hoyoe somewhat. Yeah, that's right. I was there, and uh, it was actually mostly young people, and this is quite significant at a time in which the KMT struggles to appeal to young people. And so when Hoyoe took the stage, he was booed, and Ho leaned into, for example, his relation with the police. Uh, he tried to play up his ability to speak Taiwanese, and so forth. But then it didn't really find traction with the crowd. And so he was rapidly booed. People made fun of him. Someone shouted, Bring, give us back Hangul, he was funnier. Uh, but then when it came to Terry Go and Ko Wenja, both were cheered. And so it's quite interesting because Ko, we uh, have known for a while that he is supported by young people. His election rallies in the past often have a much younger crowd than either the DPP or the KMT. Uh, it's not the largest rally. I mean, for example, estimates were around 30,000. And compared to, let's say, a Hungary rally in the lead up to 2020, it's still much smaller. But it is significant there. And even Go is cheered heavily by the crowd. Uh, because And that, that shows then that these kind of anti-establishment, not KMT, pan blue candidates have found traction among some sector of young people. Uh, the MPP was also there, and they criticized actually this alignment of former Sunfire Movement figures with pan blue figures, and they were booed for that. Well, the DPP Congress was very successful in displaying this uh, unity among the party leadership and the vision of President Tsai and uh, uh, Vice President Lai waving a flag together helped project this image of unity. But the rally in downtown Taipei like undermined this strategy by saying the DPP leadership is out of touch and with the concerns of the average Taiwanese. They were donning those fancy jackets while... Um, some uh, young protesters were gathering in downtown Taipei under the sun. So, uh, well, it is fair to ask these questions um, uh, when it comes to uh, affordable housing and, and, and justice. And it's fair to, 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 to ask these questions, but we also have to underline this uh, this uh, Terry goes an official campaign really to undermine the uh, the KMT candidate. Uh, he did fail in uh, uh, gathering the support from uh, from the KMT, but he's and his campaign he's been campaigning now for weeks to undermine the KMT candidate. So what will be his next moves and move and when uh, he might maybe running as an independent? He might announce this anytime soon. And Brian, one could argue the DPP's choice of the Grand Hotel was maybe a bit off. Well, I think the DPP is part of the party identity. I mean, it was literally founded at the Grand Hotel during the authoritarian period in which it originates for the democracy movement. But there was this optics that was zoomed in by the rally, and so it came up continuously from uh, various speakers. The notion the DPP is off enjoying air conditioning while these people are out here in the sun. And so it is kind of ironic because, of course, Terry Goh is one of the richest people in Taiwan, and him seeing, hearing him talk about affordable housing is a bit of an odd rhetoric. Um, it was mostly a rally around the Pan Blue camp, and they're 
views of politics overall, their dissatisfaction against the DPP, the demand around housing, justice, and judicial reform crystallized pretty late. Uh, it was kind of tacked on there. And so it did touch on other issues too, such as anti-fraud. It seemed the DPP is tight with gangsters and has not done enough to fight all this telephone fraud that is prevalent in Taiwan. And so uh, I think a lot of it is really the dissatisfaction against the DPP as an incumbent. And these various issues regarding economic growth or corruption or lack of uh, action on unaffordable housing, those are various demands that are linked to the DPP being in power. But it does seem to be more a Pam Blue kind of coming together uh, for this. But it does strengthen Go and Co's position strongly. But I guess the, well, the government did. The DPP did, Brian. They blamed local government heads, one of them being at the rally there, Mr. Kerr, for not having enough affordable housing in the capital. Yeah, that's right. Tsai promised to build 200,000 units and only 20,000 were complete, but the government claims that 100,000 have started construction. Uh, the new plan under Lai then is to divide it up between local and the central government. They take half responsibility for each. But I think this will be viewed as kind of pushing it back and forth. And I think fundamentally, the issue goes beyond just uh, social housing. It's the fundamentally unaffordable nature of real estate in Taiwan. And so then there was criticism at the rally of the hoarding tax the DPP has introduced on properties as being just too little too late and just a very late stopgap measure to uh, respond to these criticisms. And looking more at Terry Gwar now, well, his words adorned the Washington Post this week after it published an op-ed piece by the Honohai founder and, well, man who appears to remain dead set on running or ruining the presidency for someone next year. The piece warns about the dangers posed by the DPP's rejection of the One China Framework, or rather, uh, One China Framework. And writing in the Washington Post, Gore said Beijing, Washington and Taipei share responsibility for the current state of confrontation, but Taiwan is most at risk and it's up to the island's people and its leaders to take necessary steps to secure its future. Now, according to Gore, the 1992 consensus has facilitated millions of visits across the strait, massive investments, economic growth, hundreds of weekly direct flights, a relaxation in tensions and a sense of optimism about a peaceful future for both sides. And he also argued that by abandoning a one-China framework for talks, Taiwan's current leadership has greatly aggravated the threat of war, isolated Taiwan internationally, damaged the economy, scared away investors and made Taiwan Taiwan less secure. Now, the government was quick to dismiss Gore's proposal that Taiwan and China should agree on a one-China framework to ensure peace and stability, with the Mainland Affairs Council saying the so-called one-China perspective, well, it doesn't really exist and it never has done on either side of the Taiwan Strait. And the council also accused Gore of either lacking a comprehensive understanding of Beijing's political ambitions or of deliberately portraying the Chinese government in a favourable light. Dimitri. Well, there is nothing wrong with Goh's vision for Taiwan's future. As a business person, he believes dialogue is vital to ease tensions and uphold Taiwan's democracy and freedom. The problem is that two opposition political views seem to oppose each other, one pragmatic and one the another one more dogmatic. So as a pragmatic entrepreneur, he adopts a, a realistic, innovative and adaptable approach to business. And a, a, domict- a dom- dogmatic political figure would adhere maybe rigidly to some specific beliefs after ignoring ignoring like opposition opposing view but Terry faced the challenges of the challenge of maintaining his dogmatic vision while some other leaders might need to learn to compromise on on their domestic stance in the face of challenge so Taiwan needs both a, a, someone who is pragmatic and dogmatic at the same time but with no contacts and, and almost no China policy for the last eight years well the opposing views but the DPP view and the Terrigo's view are equally right but they are just constant each other
Well, it strikes me that Go is actually the one that's dogmatic. I mean, clinging to one China as a framework and the 99 consensus, because this has become a very toxic brand in Taiwanese politics, that even successive KMT chairs, such as Johnny Chang and Eric Chu, proposed dropping it early on in their administrations before seeming a lot of pushback from within the party, such as from Ma Ying-tio and so forth. And so... Now there's an attempt to reduce the CSSTA, a trade bill that was opposed by a massive social movement nine years ago, one of the largest in Taiwanese history. And so uh, particularly, the KMT seems really stuck on past formulas and is unable to formulate a new relation or a formula for a relation with China that is not the past, but then can maintain this. And they've gone back to advocating for economic engagement with China at a time in which the world is very cautious of China. And there's an attempt to kind of reduce dependency on China because of the potential geopolitical and economic risks. So for Go, I mean, this is not exactly a surprising view, but I mean, looking at his own statements, he has stated in uh, a few months ago that Taiwan should be cautious of economic dependency on China. He himself also quite outlandishly promised to fund the construction of 80,000 robots to defend against China, which is probably imitating Robert Tao, the, the USMC founders, pledged to fund 1 million drones to defend Taiwan. But then Go is playing both games. He's being deliberately ambiguous on his own views because he knows that if he leans too heavily into the just the engagement with China view, it won't really work out. But here, in this specific op-ed, he is leaning into that view. At other points, he's actually expressed cautious about, uh, caution about China. And why did he have it published? I mean, I mean, I'm not saying he wrote it, because I presume <laughs> someone else wrote it, just took some of his words and put them together in English. But why, why did he pick the Washington Post, and why did he want to publish it? Uh, I think a lot of it's actually just to create a kind of international perception of him. Uh, for example, just to float his name internationally. I mean, it's always a question when Taiwanese politicians write these things, who is the target audience? Uh, for example, Long Yingtai, the former Minister of Culture under Ma Ying-tio, her op-ed in the New York Times is a bit strange because it seemed to be casting doubt on the U.S., but if it's in English, is the U.S. the target audience? And so I think Go's target audience is actually the U.S. here. He's trying to frame himself as a candidate of stability for the U.S. and for D.C. I mean, we just talked about, for example, some in D.C. having skepticism about Lai. I think he's trying to appeal to that. Well, I would say that I think he tried to reach the overseas Chinese community, also to frame himself as someone as a deal maker who will fix the situation. And also, well, he also tried to reach the Deep Blue supporters, showing them he is the, not just a pragmatic, yes, he can also stick to his uh, views about the Republic of China. But his next move now is to cut a deal with Koenja. So once he, he wants, if he wants that deal, he's going to have to compromise. And again, as a business person, he will be willing to compromise. And whenever we say, that, oh, you compromise on these, he will just send you to the uh, this open ad saying, no, no, that's what I said before. <laughs> so, well, it's a two-step tango strategy, and then we just need to wait what's his next move. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't seem like he's going to go for legislator. He already turned down the uh, being a legislator at large for the KMT. And so for the TPP and Coenja, if he cuts a deal... It'll have to be something above that. So I think that's that's quite interesting. But then in the meantime, he's making these moves as though he is preparing up to run on his own. But that could also be to sweeten the deal or raise the stakes for deal making. But I still don't understand why he published it in America. I mean, it doesn't. Who? It just it's criminally boggles my mind why he wasted his time doing this. Yeah, I think sometimes the attempt is to publish an op-ed to say that, well, this represents that I have good relations with the U.S., that I can publish this in U.S. media. Go did play up his relations with Donald Trump, for example, in the lead-up to 2020, visiting the White House uh, and then floating this in media. And so that, that could also be part of it. He has an audience already. He has an audience already in Taiwan. He publishes a lot through Facebook. Whenever something crosses his mind, he just writes something and shares it on Facebook. Now he wants to maybe reach a different audience and maybe set a, a record on some issues that maybe he's going to plan to use in the future.
And moving on now, only slightly though, because the Ma Zhou Foundation welcomed a group of Chinese university teachers and students to Taiwan this past weekend for a nine-day exchange program. Now, speaking to reporters at the Taoyuan International Airport after greeting the group, Foundation Director Xiao Shu Chen said the exchange was significant for peace across the Taiwan Strait, as cross-strait exchanges are still suspended and the possibility of a military conflict with China has arisen. The group of 37 teachers and students from five universities in China was granted permission to visit at Taiwan by the National Immigration Agency after much ooing and ahhing by the government. Now, their itinerary has included visits to several universities and places of interest, including the National Palace Museum. Now, predictably enough, the visit has met with opposition, with DPP lawmakers vocally claiming that the trip is part of Beijing's United Front campaign and the group is here to engage in propaganda and push their political ideology. Those arguments are being pushed after local media quoted some of the visiting students as saying the two sides of the strait share the same origin. Now, the United Front claims are being heavily dismissed, needless to say, by the Ma Zhou Foundation, with the foundation director saying the DPP is insulting the wisdom of the Taiwanese people by attempting to link United Front propaganda to comments about Chinese culture. So, Brian, of course, the government really didn't want them to come here. But that always threw me. Why wouldn't you want a bunch of students to come here? What they, They're going to do what? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, student exchanges. There are not a lot going on currently because of cross-trade tensions and so forth. But uh, in the past, there were the appeal to mainland students at a time of declining birth rate, uh, lacking university enrollment, and so forth. And Ma recently has been quite fond of using the kind of student narrative to reinforce his claims that he is trying to make peace. Uh, for example, bringing Taiwanese students to China when he visited China uh, earlier this year. And now this is Chinese students visiting Taiwan. Uh, in that sense, I mean, the students are not going to get to see outside their bubble. I mean, they're not going to be allowed to visit, for example, uh, places of related to Taiwanese politics or the Taiwanese political history in a way that is outside of the CCP narrative. And so it is quite controlled. And I think that it is being pushed back and forth. There's not a lot of harm in students coming here, but it'd be nice if they could come and explore on their own and uh, see what they would want to see. I also felt a bit bad for these kids being used as a, for a political stunt when the first thing they did when they came here is visit a semiconductor fab. And the students were questioned and they interviewed and they were like, yeah, we kind of want to eat food. And go to a baseball match. Yeah, I mean, that sounds fun. <laughs> well, they, they can't visit um, night markets and places, I guess. They really want to visit just also because of regulations. Mm. And uh, there is for sure like a lack of media interest in this uh, visit. Uh, in a recent event this week, I remember there were just like one or two media outlets going there, just trying to interview, asking questions. Um, that's worrisome because they are just students and teachers. They're not. Uh, government officials and officials uh, but it's also a good thing because it's it allows them to have like interaction with the local public and they can argue they can disagree on a lot of things but because the media is not there it's also it gets like it, it gives the, the event or or their discussions a bit less exposure so so I think that that they can manage to solve these to solve most of these issues by themselves so Yes, I still believe it's a significant trip and uh, we do hope that in the future students could come back because Taiwanese universities need more students and uh, there is no other way to attract students suddenly in Taiwan. 
Brian, do you think Dimitri had a point about lack of media coverage? Yeah, I think there's not a lot of good uh, PR for this. I mean, I think that's just on the mind to a foundation for not doing a good enough job there um, or selling this narrative. I mean, everything is tied to the election now. Mm. But I think what is a shame is that there is Chinese students that have come mm. to Taiwan and they have ended up participating in Taiwanese social movements, becoming active in movements such as the Sunfire Movement. Unfortunately, then, the Chinese government also keeps tabs on them and has a project, uh, for example, to investigate the phenomenon of Chinese students in Taiwan becoming affected by Taiwanese political views and localizing and, in fact, participating in pro-democracy movements. Unfortunately, I think with these students, they were probably vetted ahead of time as to their ideological leanings. If any of them says something off script during an interview, for example, that will get them in trouble. And I think that's how it works in China. And you made a point about the Mao Zedong Foundation maybe should have used this. They could have used it to support their candidate or that <laughs> they have fallen very flat. Um, it's a question. I mean, I think that particularly for uh, the question is where Ma fits into the contention that came to at present. I mean, for example, Jing Putong, who's Ma's close aide, is now part of the Ho campaign, while there's the denial that he is still linked to Ma. And so I think Ma getting too directly involved would be a little too direct and provoke some in, in the Pan Blue camp. And before we go this week, the National Taiwan University's Risk Society and Policy Research Centre says a recent poll has found that a majority of people here will be willing to pay higher electricity bills to help reduce the risk of climate disasters. Now, according to Centre Research Fellow Lin Muxing, the study shows that 83% of respondents will be happy to pay a higher rate per unit of power in order to help protect the environment and mitigate the risk of climate emergencies. Lin says 30% of respondents said they will be willing to pay an additional fee of less than 1 NT per kilowatt watt hour, while another 30% said they would pay an extra 1 to 2 NT per kilowatt hour. The survey also found that 12.5% of respondents said they would pay an extra 2 to 3 NT per kilowatt hour. However, only 11.6% of the respondents said they would not be willing to pay any extra money whatsoever. And if you're interested, the current power rate per kilowatt hour here in Taiwan is 2.6 NT. Now, the research centre says the findings also suggest most people are aware of the importance of transition to renewable energy, but they think the government should be outlining more specific plans as to how they plan to do this. So, Brian, I mean, would you be willing to pay 1 to 2 NT more or 2 to 3 NT more or maybe a bit more to mitigate climate disasters? Well, I think I might, but the question is, would members of the public? And I think particularly in Taiwan, there's a lot of uh, focus on saving money. For example, just when there's a price hike for toilet paper, there's a rush for toilet paper or for instant noodles. And you have the, for example, people changing their names for free sushi. And so there's a lot of focus on even just minute increases in prices. So things are not the end of the world. And this leads to panic buying and so forth. And so I think for power, which there was a sensitive issue in Taiwan, then will people actually be willing to go for it? I mean, there are also people in Taiwan that view renewables as untested, potentially dangerous, and we should rely on traditional means of power that have been there for a while, such as nuclear energy and so forth. Well, on paper, I guess everybody would agree, but once they get their bill, they might just absolutely disagree when they see the increase. <laughs> so, uh, you, we also need to remember there are different rates for the public, for industries, and we need to remember also that uh, everybody should make effort. So it would be maybe better to reward companies or even the public, those who manage to de to decrease their energy consumption instead of um, using those arguments and you know convince trying to convince convince people to to agree to pay more while at the same time we just keep wasting en uh, electricity with uh, air conditioning. Uh, 
almost open 24-7 uh, with doors open. So, yes, we need to uh, maybe convince people to change their mindset the way they use electricity. But at the same time, we also have to remember that Thai power is losing a lot of money. And then those new policies in the end, it's always Thai power who has to, you know, foot the bill. And that would be a concern for uh, future generations. And Brian, what do you, I mean... What do people here think of the climate crisis? Obviously, in Europe, Europe is baking at the moment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think uh, there was a poll recently, and it did show that the minority of Taiwanese, like over 90%, feel that they are affected by climate change. And so there's not as much the climate skeptic discourse, climate change skeptic discourse, one sees, let's say, in the US. But then, uh, at the same time, there's not always discussion of, for example, uh, the overall issue of global warming or climate change and so forth. Oftentimes, it's thought of in terms of, let's say, air pollution or rising temperatures and, and that kind of thing. But there's not ties to this kind of, let's say, global environmental movement that one sees, for example, in Europe with Fridays for Future and so forth. For example, there's not a youth-led movement on climate change that one sees in Taiwan currently. So it's a question how much discussion there is. It will take years before the people change their mindset about how we, they use air conditioning. For people outside of Taiwan, it's easy to say that, yeah, we just, you might don't, don't even need an air conditioner. But when you live in a country like in a tropical <laughs> island like Taiwan, you, you do need an air conditioner. So we need to teach younger, younger generation how to save electricity, uh, promote policies that would convince those users. And because Taiwan keeps, you know, promoting those industries that actually consume a lot of electricity. And it, a semi semiconductor use a lot of water and electricity. So if we want to keep on promoting those industries, we have to maybe slowly change mindsets and reward those who make the real efforts. Dimitri, do you see climate crisis becoming part of the election campaign cycle or not? No, not again this year. There is a uh, a bit lack of interest on these issues and the election will will happen I think uh, because it will be in, in Taiwan's winter time so uh, those climate change issues will, will, won't be that, that relevant and uh, if as long as we don't have issues with power shortage I think everything should be smooth and they, they won't focus on this issue this year again. Yeah absolutely I mean nuclear energy will be debated as it is every election cycle but that won't translate into broader discussion of actually environmental uh, effects. Do you think Brian maybe Hoyoe should stand on a stage and talk about climate change. Was yeah, that- I mean, they might make token gestures, but I, I don't think it's the main issue people are voting on, unfortunately. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And by Dimitri Buras. It was great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.